Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 585 with my guest, Hannah. That's a a pseudonym. Uh, My name is Paul Gilmartin. For those of you that are curious, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads and our hearts and our groins uh, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. I'm a former TV host, former stand-up comedian, nut job, man about town. Uh, catastrophizer. I, if there were a degree in catastrophization, I would uh, I would look like one of those generals from the late 1800s where they couldn't possibly have any more room on their chest for medals. Uh, oh, uh, those of you in the Minneapolis area, we're going to be doing another live podcast recording at Sisyphus Brewery on May 20th. That's a Friday. Uh, more details to follow, but uh, would love to have you guys come out. Uh, guest, not sure who's going to be my guest yet, but uh, I'll let you know when, when that happens. So May 20th in Minneapolis at Sisyphus Brewery. Let's get to... Um, Let's get to some shit. One of my support groups this week, we were talking about, um, we have this this rotating format where, and the, the, this it's a Monday night Zoom meeting, and the, the topic is usually something to do around intimacy. And this week, one of the members said, Let's share about whatever voice it is in our head that we battle the most. And I was like, that is a great fucking topic. I don't know why I needed to swear right there. But, um, and then each person shared about that, that enemy that we have in our head. And for, for me, it's a voice that tells me you're going to make a mistake and you're going to die alone. It doesn't say it quite that explicitly, but that's the gist. It it hints at at that. You know, it tells me that everything is important and then I'm going to fuck it up. And even if it's not saying so, it's a feeling. And I 
I would love to know where that come from comes from because it's been there as long as I can remember. I remember in kindergarten, one of my first memories, two memories, my mom dropping me off and me sobbing, like holding onto her leg, just terrified, like I was going to die if she left me there. And the other thing I remember was probably the first week in kindergarten, they had us all coloring something. And I suddenly realized I had used the wrong color. And I lost my shit. I was, I was inconsolable. I was sobbing so hard. And the teacher was telling me, it's okay. It's okay to make a mistake. And it didn't seem to sink in. And she was, I remember she also found it so ridiculous that it was, she was having a hard time kind of not laughing at how ridiculous I was being. And I say all that to, to, to say that there is some form of that voice still in my head today. And I mean, you've certainly, those of you that are regular listeners have heard me agonize about quote-unquote mistakes I make on the podcast. But the one that's really been fucking with me lately is when I play league games with my hockey team. And I get so drained from the adrenaline that sometimes I, I, just, I can't get enough air and my legs turn to rubber. And that doesn't happen when I'm just playing pickup hockey. And I think it's because I'm afraid I'm going to color the wrong box. <laughs> I don't cry. But that's the voice that I battle in my head. I'd be curious to know, you know what? That's a good idea for a survey. Voice in your head survey. Because I'd like to hear what you guys battle. I think a lot of times, too, it's, it's the voice that a parent kind of put there unintentionally or not. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Ronnie Bottom, and he says, how does one find support groups? Are they all moderated and fee-based, or is anything a bit more organic? Google leads to great confusion. They are not uh, all fee-based, and they are not all moderated. Um, 12-step support groups are free, and they are not moderated. They may be have elected representatives for, uh, you know, six months or so where somebody makes the coffee, somebody sets up the chairs, you know, another person finds somebody to come in and speak, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But nobody is quote unquote in charge. Um, and that's one of the things that I love about 12 step things is they're very democratic. There's no hierarchy of order. And, um, I have never actually done a moderated, uh, support group meeting. I know there's some good ones out there, especially the uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness uh, have some great ones. That organization was founded to help uh, the loved ones of people who suffer from mental illness because much like uh, Al-Anon, which was founded as a way of helping the people who love the alcoholic because it Sickness does not, <laughs> does not, uh, it's not on an island. It affects everybody. 
I'm a little lightheaded. I played hockey earlier tonight, and um, I don't know what happened. I lost my balance a couple times. One time I, I hit my head in the boards. Not too hard, but it was, it was kind of embarrassing. And uh, it could be that I'm, I'm battling a uh, stomach bug, so I'm, uh, um, maybe I'm a little dehydrated. I guess all of this is just a lengthy apology. <laughs> this is just all of me saying, please don't leave me. Please love me. Please tell me I'm enough. I'm having a trouble finding words. Yes, this was uh, this was the episode that Paul uh, had an aneurysm. It was really interesting for the first uh, seven minutes and 30 seconds. And then it was tragic. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Rosie. And uh, she writes, I always enjoy the survey section of the podcast. When I have a question or whatever, I sometimes uh, submit one myself. Something I've learned from the survey is how my particular, particular sexual fantasy, despite being very misaligned with my and most listeners' morals, is not all that uncommon. I can only seem to climax if I imagine being treated like dirt. The worse, the better. Someone hitting me, raping me, being used whilst I'm asleep, rough gangbangs, and all that kind of wholesome sexual stuff. And yes, I have a history of childhood sexual trauma and no awards for guessing that one. It may not come of too much of a surprise that I also have intimacy issues with my partner, and I think my lack of wanting to be sexual with him is in part because my fantasies are so extreme they are incongruent with the bedroom. Even with the open-minded partner I have, they are just too extreme to be honest about. So the fact that I am imagining this stuff while do, whilst doing sexy time with him creates this barrier for me and has led to worse and worse intimacy issues and a lack of desire to do anything with him. I would rather imagine my extreme stuff and masturbate alone. Then, because I masturbate instead of trying sex with him, I feel guilty and my sexual desire is reduced further. I remembered you had described having intimacy issues of some sort, so I submitted a survey a while back asking your advice on where to start to get help with intimacy issues in general without going into too much detail about myself. Then, I didn't think much more about it. Nearly every single fucking time you describe one of those surveys in which someone's fantasies, similar to the extreme stuff that I get off to, I get instantly horny, which can be very inconvenient, might I add. So I was listening to the podcast alone at home one day, and you describe a listener's most powerful sexual, sexual fantasy is being raped. That got me going again. So, as usual, the podcast was paused and off I go to my bed to enjoy five minutes alone time. Pretty much straight after I climax, I turn the podcast back on, carrying on with my day like nothing happened, and I hear you say the next survey is from Rosie, who describes her intimacy issues, etc., etc. So there I sat, still sweaty and dreamy, when my post-orgasm endorphin bubble was abruptly burst as you go on to read my survey as the very next survey recommending how I should seek help for my intimacy issues before they get worse. I imagine this must be how it feels if your mom or dad walks in on you during sex. 
And yes, I've started reading the goddamn book. The book she's referring to is a book called The Erotic Mind by by Jack Morin. Um, I assume that's the book she's talking about. That's the one that um, is about how our sexual fantasies can often be incongruent with our uh, with our morals. But um, I, I I hope that when I read your survey, uh, I didn't come across as shaming because that is certainly not uh, what what I'm trying to. Uh, uh, my brain is going to. To screensaver. That's not what I'm. Uh, what I'm trying to get across is that there is there is help if you want to be more intimate with your partner. If that's your choice, um, I'm not saying one thing is better than the other. It's more about okay, you want this thing to improve. How do we how do we go about doing that? This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by BB. And she asks, I know you've had struggles with using substances. I have too. How do you handle people you care about in your life who start using after being sober? When you see the downward spiral and you wish you could help, but you know you can't, how do you come to terms that they might die? Um, that's a great question. And that's, for me, where spiritual spirituality has to enter into it because I have to let go, be it to the universe, a higher power, God, whatever you want to call it. I have to accept that I can't control that other person, just like I can't control traffic or the weather. I can only control my reaction to it. And I can tell that person that I love them. Um, I have to make sure that I'm not enabling them. And... Um, Sometimes I have to cut contact because it's too painful to watch them slowly kill themselves. But uh, that's a great question. Just Me asks, I'm wondering how you deal with loneliness while you work from home. My dream is to become a full-time artist, but the one hang-up I have is that I tend to get depressed if I spend too much time by myself. Are there strategies you use for the days you're not interviewing anyone? That's a, that's a great question. And I got to tell you, I love being alone and I hate being alone. Um, I know that sounds like it doesn't make any sense. I like the predictability of none of the surprises you get when you walk out your front door. But I also miss out on the great moments you get to experience when you walk out your front door. And so one of the things that I used to do is I would go to this coffee shop pre-pandemic because uh, it was right near the gym that I worked out at. And so that was my daily place uh, every every weekday. And I would work on my laptop there. And it was perfect because I got the sense of life going on around me I got to ignore everybody. <laughs> oh, just like my dad. That's exactly how my dad was. But my suggestion or something to think about for you as an artist would be, I don't know, are you an artist artist where you need a an easel and a bunch of paintbrushes? That might be inconvenient to drag to a coffee shop, but... Um, Maybe you could bring a sketchbook and, and some pencils. Just some place where, uh, where there's just kind of the ebb and flow of, of, of people. I find that that helps me. 
even if I don't meet anybody or talk to anybody, I feel like I did something. And I think we, I think it helps our energy too to, to be around other people, obviously depending on the people. Um, we are sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, stress is something that I've battled my whole life. And it's funny because I used to think I was the most laid back person. And then once I started getting into support groups and going to therapy and expressing my inner thoughts, I realized just because I'm not running around and screaming and shouting and getting in fights, it doesn't mean I'm not wound tightly. And I think stress and depression are often very, very closely linked. And in therapy, uh, I've really helped, um, Heidi is my therapist, and she's really helped me find out what the link is between my thoughts and my moods and my actions, because they're all kind of interrelated. And when your thoughts are negative and doom-based, it's pretty hard to not be stressed out all the time. And so that's what we're working on. And uh, better help? is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E. E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then uh, finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mere Muse. And she writes, I had my annual evaluation at work today. I met all expectations and got a raise. Then on the behavior section, it said, I talk on my phone all day and they want me to stop. I was too embarrassed to admit I was always only talking to myself and reacting to podcasts. No, sir, not talking on my phone, just nuts. I work assembly in a noisy factory and didn't realize anyone could hear me. 
Guess I'll have to work on whispering or speaking under my breath. Come to think of it, the last place I worked had two of us that constantly babbled to ourselves as well. They set our stations up next to each other so it looked like we were talking to each other when companies would tour the facilities. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt push it all down you can't go around it Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk through is the only path no one is ever alone there's somebody else out there don't forget experiencing the same thing as you that the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them will one day be your greatest strength and when you find them it's a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside you're in the right place. I'm here with uh, Hannah. That's the pseudonym we're going to use for you so you can speak freely. A uh, couple things we want to talk about. Um, to, we Before we started recording, you were saying that you had this like year, year and a half of, of like insanity around love addiction in a, in a relationship. And the other thing we want to talk about is um, money, the obsession with saving uh, beyond, I think, what the average person does in a healthy, responsible way. Mm-hmm. Um, which would you like to talk about first? First, actually, let's let's just talk about kind of what home life was like growing up. Sure. So I've thought a lot about this since I knew I was coming to talk with you, Paul, and uh I always thought that I had a pretty good childhood, you know, at least because I was carefree. I was a kid. I didn't have responsibilities, and that was great. But I actually lived in an extremely sexualized household, I realize. My uh, my dad left. My mom and dad divorced when I was six years old, and I had an older sister by four years, so she was like 10, and I had my mother. And my mother was a depressive. She was very depressed, very anxious. And what was great about my mom was she was dedicated to my sister and I, almost like to an obsessive. She just loved us. She was there for us. She talked to us. She wanted the best for us. But she was depressed. And she wanted a man. She was very important to her. My sister was going into puberty. And she was in that stage where she was dressing up and sexy and going out, starting to get into that stage pretty soon. And my whole house was just filled with, I guess I'd call it boy craziness, Mm -hmm. absolutely dedicated to men and sex. And it was the seventies and it was New York city. And it was about, you know, being free with your sexuality. And the ironic thing was I lived on a block in Queens with a bunch of immigrants who were actually the opposite. They were traditionalists. They were um, from Greece, and all their kids, they spoke the you know Greek, and all their kids were, all the parents were together. Moms were stay-at-home moms. Dads went to work. 
and you know nothing was sexualized but i was a kid hmm. and i didn't understand that i was different even though i was that i was living different on the same block and one of the best examples i have of when i sort of realized it was my mom was dating a married man and i was even i even went around with her to his house and had to duck down she wanted to drive by wow. his house wow right and he used to sleep over and she was very sad. She used to cry all the time, whatever. You know, she wanted this man. She thought she was in love with him. But in any case, um, one day I was standing out with my friends and the Greek mothers, you know, in their house dresses were standing out there with their kids and they looked over at my house and his, he had a Beamer or something. And it was like, I guess he had money and he was parked in front of my house and they said, oh, they were kind of impressed. They're like, oh, your mom has a new boyfriend, you know, like mm -hmm. thinking she, she nailed a one with money type mm -hmm. deal. Of course, I didn't get that. And I said, yeah, but he's married like that. Mm. And the looks on their faces and they started muttering to themselves and <laughs> like this and stuff like that. And I became in an instant mortified because mm. it was in that instant that I realized that this was behavior that I should not be announcing around the neighborhood. Mm. But with my young mind, I was just hearing about it every day. So right. if you know that it came up so... And on my block, it was all boys, except for me and a couple of little uh, girls. And I'll tell you, they talk now about how people shouldn't, you know, that you got to watch your kids. I wasn't watched. We were all out on the street all the time playing. And everything was sexualized that they said to me. I was a little girl. And I didn't at the time think anything of it. But they would always make sexual jokes to me when I was 10, your 11. Peers. Or your family, oh, my the peers, the boys, right? They would my my family didn't make jokes about it. They were just out there looking for it. But um, they would just constantly make jokes about it. Like I, one I remember was, I was walking down the street and these sixteen year old kids that I played that I hung out with, you know, they were older. They said, "Hey there, hey there, Hannah, how's your vagina?" And I was like totally mortified and kept walking by. And then they said, the other one goes, it's widening. It's widening. Wow. And I had no fucking idea what that meant. Like to me, I was like, I spent like weeks trying to figure out, is my vagina going to get wider? What do they mean? Like, and that kind of thing happened every day. Wow. But I never thought of it as a problem. Not once did I think of it as a problem. That was just how people were on my block. And as a matter of fact, I was like really excited about myself because I was very vivacious. And so I was always out there kind of bantering with them. And But, uh, you know, only looking back now do I realize, wow, that was highly sexualized environment, mm -hmm. you know? So the only reason why I'm giving you as much detail as I am, and please stop me if it's too much. No, I is, think it's really important. Um, yeah. And and I think a great example that it doesn't have to come from an inappropriate family alone um you know we talk a lot about society's um treatment of women and the female body and boundaries and stuff like that and yes it was a different time but that doesn't mean it's any easier on the person who's who's being sexualized right and and like I said, at the time, yeah, there were times that I was embarrassed or that time when I was confused by a comment and felt silly and young that I didn't understand. But I didn't hate it. I didn't I didn't like it. I didn't hate it. For the most part, it was just like the air that I breathed. Mm -hmm. And 
I hit puberty and I became very, very promiscuous, extremely promiscuous. And what can are you comfortable talking more? Sure. Uh, sure. About that because I think different people have different ideas of what very promiscuous you know to some people it might mean sexual freedom to other people it might mean total shame and unhealthiness and i think i don't know where i got it in my head and maybe this will connect to the way i count money and things um i took it in my head that the more that my that i a contest with myself to see how many men i could have and how how old were you were you when this started? Fifteen. Okay. And were they your peers? They were peers. Yeah. I was a, I was a rarity. I didn't go for older guys. Maybe just a couple of years at the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a period when I was just going out, getting drunk, clubbing, and sleeping with guys. And I would actually write. At one point, it got too many. I was remembering, and then so I started writing it down in a book. Just like the name or something, mm-hmm. because I thought that it was, you know, a good thing to uh, keep track of. And I was proud of it. Well, I mean, that makes sense, given where you were raised and it was treated like a prize. I guess I don't think that my sister and my mother were ever anywhere near as promiscuous as I was. Right. Um, but that's just how what one of the things that manifested in me. And um, and then I ended up. And then I also ended up, this was probably the first love addictions. There were like two boys that I was in love with that at different points that I really wanted and loved, but they would just call me and we would go out and get drunk and party and then have sex. And it was great. And I had a great time, but I was always waiting for them to call me. It was never a relationship. I wanted it to be a relationship, but they never did. And I remember waiting and waiting all the time or always going downtown to try and wait around to try with my girlfriends to try and run into those boys you know so that and see them and then we would hang out you know type thing because they were the ones that were cool and i was i was cool as a girl but i was always kind of on a lower level than the guys and what do you think it was in particular about them that made it so much more intense than the other relationships I was obsessed with them. They were cool. They were funny. For me, funny is everything. Um, it wasn't even that they were the best looking, but they were funny. And they and they also were, they, they were self-confident. I hate to use that. Um, I don't want other men out there to hear this and say, you know, I got to put on the bravado. I was young, don't mm-hmm. forget. But for a lot of women, I think self-confidence, uh, and I think for men, for women as well, absolutely, is a real um, a real turn on. But this is all going to connect to what my sexual problems are now, because you would think from that, this upbringing, the way I acted, that I was a highly sexualized person, that I love sex, you know, that the physical act of sex, whatever, because I had sex with so many people and... Um, you know, and seem to enjoy it and, and have a good time. But in fact, sex has been a big problem in my life uh, because I don't think I really enjoy it that much. Mm-hmm. And It was a, a tool for validation and to get a sense of self? Maybe. I think it I was. Mean, I think it's what I chose. Right. Yeah, I chose it. 
and I don't want to say it was all horrible because at the time I there were a few bad experiences, of course, you know, where whatever, but nothing major. And uh, I at the time I thought I was really having a very good time. You know, so I wasn't miserable. Uh, I was miserable about those boys, but I wasn't miserable about the one night stands. Um, And when I when I graduated, I wanted to get away from it all. I said, you know, this world is fucked up. Uh, For some reason, I decided I New York is fucked up. You know, this whole shit. So I'm going to I'm going to move. I'm going to go to New England because everything's much more pure there. I'm going to go to college. And, um, when I was in high school, I had had a one male friend who I'd never had sex with and who really wasn't that kind of guy that I wanted to, but he was a funny guy and a friendly guy and he knew me back then and he knew what I was like. Then I left. And, um, after a lot of other things, got married, had kids, uh, went on and did my thing. Well, surprisingly, I married a guy who was very uncomplicated and sort of catered to me. He uh, he was just a sort of your regular Joe. And I think that's why I married him. It was because it like, seemed very safe and he would take care of me and, you know, had a couple of kids. Completely lost interest in sex. I mean, to the point like... You did. Yes, yes. I had no desire. I mean, zero desire. Would it be fair to even say there was dread? Mm, Just like, oh, really? Do we have to? So it's more like I've got enough to do. This is just something that I should do because I'm married Mm -hmm. and there's a guy here that wants it. But, uh, you know, no, no interest or whatever. And it was so long that it went on that way that I didn't even remember what it was to be aroused, you know? So I would have sex occasionally, you know, we didn't have it a lot. And, you know, that's, I think, what's different between men and women. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's very hard for a man to have sex if he doesn't have some level of arousal, right, mm-hmm. physically. Yeah. But a woman can. Right. You know. And what was his experience? My husband? Yeah. With with you not being interested. Was it talked about? Did you guys communicate? Was it just swept under the rug? Well, it's interesting. I'm a very open person. Um, that's, I think, that's probably my greatest strength in life. I figured that out as I've gotten older. But he knew it, and I don't think he was very satisfied. But I think he accepted it, or at mm-hmm. least I thought he did. Until this is what's interesting. I got an antidepressant. So this may be the first time I've heard of an antidepressant having the opposite effect. But it took me out of my depression that I was in to a certain extent. It was Prozac when they first started using the SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, something changed in me. I woke up a little bit. I wasn't depressed. And we hired a painter. (laughs) Sounds like a bad joke. We hired a painter. (laughs) to come paint the outside of the house. (laughs) And I became overwhelmed with desire for this particular individual. And I, it it was, I don't even know why, right? He was there. I was awoken. I, you know, maybe chemically things had gotten Mm -hmm. better and it was driving me crazy. I was literally lying in bed while he was painting outside my window. Mm -hmm. Like, 
and he couldn't see me because of the sun, but I could see him. And anyway, I fussed and fussed about it. And I was like, what am I going to do? I, 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 I want to have sex with this guy. So I turned to my husband. I was lying in bed. Oh, this is the other part that we didn't even talk about before. Mm. And I said, I got I to gotta tell you something. I said, I want to have sex with the painter, right? And I thought he was going to like tell me, just forget it. What are you, crazy? Mm-hmm. And he said, hmm. Or you can have sex with him if I can have sex with his wife. <laughs> And I said, what? And instead of getting upset, to me, this was like, fuck yeah, I can get what I want and still stay married because I still loved him. We had actually a very, very good working relationship. We talked, we laughed, you know, Mm -hmm. we just weren't sexual. And he bored me a little bit, let's be honest. So um, I said, are you? kidding me and he's like yeah he actually had we knew some people that actually talked like that so i guess he had had so uh, apparently he maybe had been thinking about things a little bit and he Mm -hmm. wasn't so satisfied that's why i'm saying this when you said how was your husband about it right right? Right. i didn't know about it but this would i said do you even know his wife he didn't even know who she was okay he just was like i guess he just wanted anybody but me at that point so um i was like fuck okay so i then proceeded to try to seduce this man and I'm going to fast forward because I've got so much to tell you. What, what did that look like, the seduction? It was hysterical because um, he was up. I, I invited him for lemonade or iced tea. I decided I had to, you know, bring this cliche to its fruition. Right. And, uh, you know, he came in. I gave it to him. And uh, and then I finally said something like, I just, we were just chit-chatting when I was having a hard time moving beyond small talk. So I just finally said, I said, you know, it's, I'm really embarrassed saying this, but I'm very attracted to you, right? Mm-hmm. He stood there like a deer in the headlight, right? He was like staring at me and he's like, um, you know, and I was like, but, you know, I mentioned this to my husband, you know, he does know about this, but he would want to sleep with your wife. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> See, I'm a nut. I'm a nut to even have done this. And he kind of like, he kind of like said, oh no, I, you know, this, I, I don't know, you know, I, you know, and he kind of got out of it and he left. And I actually like broke down when he left. I was like crying. I was crying. I'm like, I can't even get this painter. You know, what's, what's become of me? I'm such a fool. Tomorrow when he comes, I'm going to apologize because I made a fool of myself and I'm embarrassed. Well, talk about my father. I called my father and I told my father this story. That's the, I mean, mm-hmm. my parents are very 70s open, sexual, everything. Mm-hmm. And he said, this isn't over. I said, what do you mean it isn't over? He said, it's over. He told me no. He said, he's going to come back tomorrow. He's going to have had a chance to think about it. And he's going to want to do it. And I said, I said, Dad, what are you talking about? He told me no to my face. Guess who was right? Your dad. My dad was right. He went home. He thought about it. And he came back and he said, I really was scared to say anything because my wife and I are having a lot of trouble. And I thought she put you up to it. I don't even know your wife. Anyway, long story short, I ended up sleeping with him. His wife got very upset about the whole thing because she ended up finding out. It was a disaster for them. All right. Right. It was a disaster for them. And did your husband know that you had started having sex? Yep. He gave me, the painter said, look, you know, my wife, we just can't. She won't do it because she's, uh, I mean, I can't ask her. 
because, you know, we've got problems and stuff and it's just, we can't do it. And so I came, went back to my husband and I said, he can't get his wife to do it, but please, 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 come on, baby, come on, you know, let me do this. He said, okay. So I did it. In the end, that blew up. They are out of our lives, okay? But it opened up a situation. We decided to become swingers. We said, look, you know, we both want to do this. Let's do this. So we entered into the swinging world, which I don't know if you've ever had a guest to talk about what that's like, because I have some very interesting takes on what happens in the swinging world. I'd love to hear your input. I think we've touched on it, but I don't know if we've ever really gone in depth into it. Okay. It's very, very hard. It's kind of, for us, let me put it this way. Um, Maybe it's easier for other people. I don't think it fit us. What happens is is you go online and you start trying to, like a dating site. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's one added thing that makes it even harder than dating. In dating, how hard is it to find one other person? You have to find four people that at least, you know, think the other person's okay, like each other, be sexually attracted to at least one or the other, have to be willing to do the same things because there's all different kinds of swinging. There's soft swinging. There's hard swinging. There's watching. There's, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. It sounds so awkward (laughs) to me. That's just the first thing that comes to mind. Um, Yeah. Talk about awkward. Then you get together with people, usually two couples. That's what we were trying to do. There's different combinations. And you get together, and you'd be surprised. It's boring. People sit at the freaking dinner table or whatever out in a restaurant, and they, like, talk about, like, remodeling their kitchens or something. Like, it's it's right. so hard for people. Like, you think that these people are way out there. Some of them are, but most of them are just middle-class, regular Joe Schmo and wife who are bored to death, and then they get together. And do you think it's so easy to, for them to switch from that mode of, like, garden party to, you know, yeah. something sexualized? Anyway, we tried it a little bit. We went to swingers' parties. Those are a riot. I mean, those are... In what way? Well, they didn't fit us either because... A lot of people at the swingers party were were into like orgies. So they'd have these rooms and they'd like, you'd peek in, people would stay in the hallway and you'd peek in, there'd be like 10 people or eight people on a bed, like doing stuff and, you know, different rooms people could go into. And then you're in the, the main party room. And it's just like when you're young and you're at a party and, or like, and you're trying to pick up a guy or a girl, you're kind of standing around. Mm-hmm. There's lots of food. There's a buffet, you know. <laughs> And you're, I mean, I've been in these things where people really, the discussion is not sexual at all, you know, and then there'll be like sexual dancing on the dance floor and stuff. Mm-hmm. But because I'm a love addict, I'm not a sex addict. It didn't work for me. You know, it was mostly like, this is a little bit gross. This is just, you know, I don't know who these people are and they don't think much, they don't care who I am. They just want anybody or, you know, and it like, it didn't. Then we met my current husband. So I'm remarried. So uh, we we uh, got together with a couple, and they weren't married, but they were together kind of. And in any case, uh, I fell in love within one night mm. and uh, went crazy and was obsessed and... My ex-husband, bless his soul. I mean, I think he would be mortified if he, he just, he just never stood up against it. You know, he, 
I said, look, I love you. We have great, we have kids, we have a house, we have lives together. You know, now I'm going to have this boyfriend. And I said, you could have a girlfriend. I don't care. Get yourself a fucking girlfriend. Like, that's how Mm -hmm. I was like, I just, but I was unwilling to give up. Well, neither of us thought we were ready to give up the relationship. Fast forward, you know, eventually we realized that I I realized I was in love and I wasn't going to, you know, be able to do it anymore. And we decided to get divorced. Uh, It was 14 years. And did your feelings about your new husband change once you were out of the relationship? Did, did Was the sexual attraction and the obsession, did it lessen? So it has now. Mm-hmm. But what happened in the beginning was um, he has a weird sexuality, which is why I met him in the Springer's, swinger scene. A lot of times people who get into those scenes have different – I don't want to use the word weird. Let's just right. say he's a fetishist. Right. And his fetish is completely two things. One is – Lycra, um, stockings, anything that has to do with certain kinds of clothes on mm-hmm. women. Okay, right. I mean it's so strongly, uh, it's so strong that it's just huge. Okay, for him, he almost he would disagree. He hates when I say this, but mm-hmm. I feel like he can't get aroused without it. Almost, you know, mm-hmm. he says that's not true, but whatever. So the fir- and he also is a uh, what's the word again when a guy likes his, to see his woman with another man. Oh, um, um, cuckolding. Cuckold. Yeah, it was perfect. Okay, because I had this thing about you know that I you know remember what I did when I was a teenager and everything, mm-hmm. and I realized that my sexuality is almost entirely tied up with the man's turn on. So he would be elaborate. He'd want me to buy all these clothes. He'd buy things for me and he'd have put them on. He'd take thousands of pictures of me. He would just, I mean, we did a whole thing where we were going to different venues, like outside and everything. And he'd put me in these clothes and he would take pictures of me. And it was like, I had never had anybody like treat me almost like, you know, like, oh, it's so gorgeous. I put this on you. I put that on. And so for couple of years that was very exciting for me and you he know? would take pictures of you while you were engaged in sex with no he's oh. he's a soft porn type of guy gotcha just like in poses and and mm-hmm. things like that and it was like almost almost heartwarming i don't know you know what i yeah. mean like it was yeah. stuff you would see in a uh, an underwear magazine you know right. like nothing really um so that made me feel good so that kept our sex life going and then on top of that uh we kept up the swinging, trying to, because he, I was like, yeah, this would be cool. You know, uh, I can sleep with guys you can watch or you can imagine it. And I can tell you that we had some successful encounters, but they were so few and far between. It was such hard work because you'd meet somebody and you'd really not connect with them. Yeah. You'd meet somebody and they'd be creepy. You'd, you know, you'd, you'd try for hours online. People say they want to meet and they wouldn't. It was frustrating. You know, it was like we just couldn't find the right person. It never worked exactly. But there were a few early on, especially encounters that were satisfying to both of us. So that kept our sex life kind of fresh and vital, which I didn't have with my first husband. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, eventually that petered out. Eventually, um, Eventually, we fell into the same kind of way that I was with my first husband, Mm -hmm. like just vanilla sex once in a while. And I I got sick of dressing up. 
I, I, which is kind of, he, he's still sad about that. Um, don't really want to do it too much. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling older too and not as attractive. So, um, so anyway, so, but, but we're happy with each other basically and had really moved forward through a lot of other non-sex related issues that we had to work through over the last 10, you know, those 10, 15 years that we were together and still are. And so we were in a good emotional place. And this is where we get to the story of what happened with my friend. The friend that I had from childhood that was a funny guy that I never slept with, but that I kind of knew. I had looked him up a couple of times over the years and reconnected with him. And every time I reconnected with him, it was non-sexual, but there was sexual tension that we never had as kids. I didn't find him attractive. I thought he was an unattractive man to me. And so that kind of took out that part. But he was hysterical. The funniest person I think I've ever known in my life. And he still is. And when we would get together, which my husband was fine with, uh, and it was very, very infrequent, um, we would have a blast. And there was a sexual tension starting to develop. And he was a bit of a dilettante, is that right word? Or just, he was a ladies' man, kind of. You know, and he did a couple of things. Like, I, we, got, we would drink, and I'd get together. We went to a bar. I went to visit him, and... You know, he stuck his hand up my skirt and put his finger inside of me. I guess a friend shouldn't really do that, but. <laughs> what was your, what did you think or feel in that, in that moment? Did, was that something that. Oh, it was so you exciting. Were, oh, okay. So you were okay with that. I was, I was, I wasn't in love with him. I wasn't addicted to him, but it was like these few and far between experiences that were kind of wild. And because I was a swinger and because we did some sort of open stuff, I thought it was okay. And I always went home and, and we're talking like, really, we're talking about decades. That's the part that's weird is like, I really didn't see this guy. But when I did see him, I finally, uh, and he'd say something like, you know, what I think someday is going to happen is someday you and I are going to be old and we'll be sitting in rocking chairs together after all this is over. And I was like, wow, that's, that's sweet, you know? And then I called him up after that last time and I said, hey, you know, you know, I'm a swinger. He knew that, right? And I said, come up and visit. You know, Pete, and, uh, my husband and I are having a really hard time finding somebody that, I can sleep with that he can get get off on and um I, I I let's do it you know we've been waiting all these years you know he called me back and he said you know I really want to see you but I don't think we should do that I just can I come up as a friend and I said you know what absolutely absolutely and I and it all fell out of me I was like okay he's not he doesn't want to but he's coming up because he had visited me I'd always visited him back home he came up we had we we hung out with my husband for a little bit. Then we hung out alone, and we drank and we got high and we partied and we laughed and it was like amazing. And then I but we didn't do anything together. And then when he was leaving, he was getting on a bus. Actually, I remember standing at the bus and he looks at me and he says, "I want you to remember this." And he points to himself and to me and does like this gesture, like remember. I said. He was talking about the dynamic. Remember this dynamic. Just remember this. And then he got on the bus. I was like, what the hell did he mean by that? What, 
it was like it was like I, I didn't understand what he was saying. It's like is he saying you know we're supposed to be together or whatever? And uh, I started to really think about him. I started thinking, you know, this is maybe the man that when it when and if my husband ever should happen to pass before me. I mean, I was actually thinking about that. I'm old enough now. I'm 54. I was 50 at the time. I'm like, you know, it could happen. This will be the man I go to if that happens. And that's a weird thing to have in the back of your mind. It was kind of like, I'm I'm dedicated to my current husband, but if he were to pass, I'm going to go to this person. And, and it, it kind of changed the way I thought about my relationship a little bit. And then finally, a couple of years later or whatever, um, he came up to visit again. I said, you know, remember what I said about having mm-hmm. sex? And he said, yeah. I said, I said, you, he said, I'll do it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's stop. He came up to visit and we went away for a couple of nights. Fucking bastard. The very first thing he did when he got there after when my husband was gone was say, you know, I've loved you my whole life. I've loved you. I said, what do you mean you've loved me? I said, we've, he said, ever since we were kids, you're my girl. I said, I'm your girl. I said, but I don't understand. Why didn't you ever go for me? You know, if, if that's the case. And he said, there was a beat. And then he said, you, you were always taken, which was actually a very true statement. He's mm-hmm. like, okay, I was always taken. He's a gentleman. He didn't go for me because he knew I had relationships. And then he told me I was his soulmate. I said, how can that be? We don't even really know each other. He goes, I know the essence of you. I knew you when you were a kid. I know who you really are. I was like, wow. And then we had one of those weekends I had been waiting to have sex with this man for so for several years now that when we did, it was like fireworks. It was like I felt like my mind blew up. And he came and he yelled out, I love you at the top of his lungs. <laughs> That's what he said. And I was just like, I was just floored. Like the whole thing was so emotional. You know, we talked about deep things and, you know, our feelings and this and that. And then he left. I was unable to function. I was crying day and night. I'm like, I finally reach him. And he's like, oh, yeah, everything's, everything's you know, going to be different now that we, you know, had sex. I go, is it? I go, I don't understand. I don't know what happened, you know. And, and I'm... In retrospect, I'm looking now like, why did, if he hadn't told me all that shit, you know, I'm calling it shit now, you know, I think I could have separated it like I had been doing, probably mm-hmm. not. But anyway, um, he, he, so he, you know, he, he basically after that became such a horrible experience for me because we decided, I said, you know, look, I want to be with you. He said, well, Rob, he said, but, you know, you have this life. I don't want you to mess up your life. You know, you've got, you know, you've got this going on, that going on. And, you know, I don't know what I can offer you. I said, look, I don't give a flying fuck about that. I said, if this is what was meant to be, if you're, I'm 50 years old, I don't have any more time. I don't, I couldn't believe I wanted to have sex again. I couldn't believe that I felt that way. You know, it was like overpowering, like, oh my God. So and he's like, well, you know, I, I don't think I can do it. I said, what do you mean you don't think you can do it? He goes, I love you. I want you to always be part of my life, but I am not capable of it. I said, what do you mean? I, I honestly, until 
things happened later. I did not understand what he meant. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if you love somebody, you say you love them. You, he, we were going through that period of love addiction where we were building up each other. He was telling me how funny I was, how I was the ultimate woman, how everything feels just right when he's touching me. I mean, there was another thing. I just want to hold you in my arms, not have sex, and just lie naked with each other and talk all night. Things like that, you know, and I would say them back. I'd say, you're the funniest guy I've ever met, you know, blah, blah, blah. We were heady. We, our egos were through the ceiling, you know. It was like just telling each other how great we both were and how much we loved each other. And then he's like, I'm like, he said, you know, I can't do it. I said, what do you mean you can't? I couldn't believe it, and I would not accept it. I said, look, we got to get together. We got to get together again and see what's happening. So we got together. And uh, we had a great weekend. At the end of the weekend, I sat in the car as he was getting out of my car to get into the the train station. And I said, so what did you think? And he said, did it go as well as you thought? He goes, better. And I'm like, great. You know, went home. Couldn't get a hold of him. Couldn't get a hold of him for like 10 days. Finally get a hold of him. I could hear him smoking cigarettes like (laughs) on the phone because he was so freaked out for me because I was I was like, he's like, no. He's like, no. I was like, why? Are you worried about ruining my life? I'm telling you, it's my life to ruin. I'll do what I want. You know, you should, you know. No, it's for me. I don't really want it. And, um, you know, of course, I argued with him. I cried. I went crazy. Hung up the phone. The next week, I drove down to his house and showed up at his house. Oh, now that's the part where it almost sounds like I'm becoming a stalker. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I just want to warn everybody that's been stalked out there that, you know, whatever. I wasn't really a stalker, but I showed up at his house. He ended up having sex with me, and I left. And what I ended up doing over the next year and a half was saying, okay, we'll just see each other every once in a while. That's fine. It was bullshit. It was complete bullshit. My thing was is if this man sees me enough and I'm in his life enough, he'll grow to understand that this I was in shock. I can change his feelings about me. But I, see, even now I'm reacting badly to that because I believe that, I believe that he felt things for me, but there was something wrong with him. Like he just, what I said to him, I said point blank to him, I said, how is it possible for a person to act the way that you act when you're with me, like you're in love with me? Like I'm the queen of the world and to, you know, have sex with me seven times in 24 hours and we're 50 years old, you know, and tell me also that you don't want to have sex with anybody else. I, he tells me, I was walking down the street the other day and I was wondering, is she the last woman I'm ever going to have sex with? If he hadn't said things like that, you know, if he had said to me, I'm a womanizer, you know, I, I don't know why I said all that stuff. I was drunk. He never said that. He never, he never backed out. Here's here's the, the the thing that is so familiar to me from the support groups and all the stories I've heard is just focusing on the things that he said and done that you want to hear, that you want to believe, and not taking into account the inconsistency, the emotional unavailability, how it makes your life or at least your emotions feel unmanageable and that is such a difficult hurdle for people when they're in the throes of 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 some type of obsession or addiction and reason goes out the window that 
those drugs that go through our body when we are in that in that state it's like heroin and the pharmacy's in our head and it's open 24 hours and oh. if and if you grew up in a, a place where boundaries weren't really modeled for you oh fuck absolutely i gotta tell you that for a year and a half i was higher than anybody on meth i was going through the motions of my life but my mind was racing 24 hours a day when i was driving to work i wouldn't even listen to the radio anymore because i couldn't concentrate because i was thinking all the time about the last thing he said what he did why he didn't call and tears were coming out of my eyes Mm -hmm. And my blood, well, I don't know if my blood pressure was up, but my whole body was in such a state of alert and stress that I'm surprised I didn't have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I had made my decision that if, and people would say to me, friends, don't you see, he's not going to do this. Look what he's doing. He didn't call. He never calls when he says, and I'd say, they always said the same thing. I said, you listen to me. I saw it with my own eyes. I was there. I know how he is when he's with me. Nobody is going to convince me he's not in love with me. I didn't know that a person could act like that and walk out the door. I could never put on, I mean, it's the Oscar winning performance, you know, and I just kept coming back to that. Like nothing that he's doing could, could convince me. Have, has the thought ever crossed your mind that the intensity of these feelings are actually probably Possibly not about him, but about something historical that happened in your life or some type of void that I think the idea of him, the magical thinking about him yes. feels like it fills. I mean, don't let me put words into your no, mouth. No, there's part of what I agree with you and part that I don't. Okay. okay. I think his connection to my childhood, which I will add, I have no connection anymore to almost anybody from my childhood. It's like that world never existed. I don't mean with him. Yeah. The history with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, maybe needs not being met, emotional needs not being met as a as a kid. I just I see that a lot in support groups, and I and I've experienced it. Yes, I think that of course there's some psychological component, and what you know, some of the stuff I already described to you, you know, of my childhood. Um, but there was another part of it too, which is that, um, my current husband is an immigrant. Uh, he doesn't have the same background. He doesn't have the same sensibility. This person not only, um, comes from America, but also comes from my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. He had the same upbringing and we kind of talk about things and he, he, he provide, he was able to provide for me some connections that I can't get. In my and he also acts like those boys on my block. Mm-hmm. He kind of is superior. He kind of is like sexual innuendo. He's you know heady and thinks that you know he's a man and you know things that I don't agree with. But at the same time, turn me on for some reason, you know. And I know that's not what you were getting at. I know you're getting. No, but at- I think that's also a really Im- important thing because it. The brain and the heart so often have not been to the same briefing. 
you're just like, what the fuck is going on? And I think oftentimes our sexual fantasies can be diametrically opposed to what we agree with in real life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the end, um, it, it ended and maybe we can go into that, maybe not. But one of the things I've learned and you had recommended on the podcast, The Erotic Mind, which talks about, you know, how your sexuality sort of comes into being. I've come to the rather sad conclusion, but not that sad, that I cannot be aroused without being love addicted. That I just, if I'm not in that state, and when I was aroused for that year and a half, I remember saying to myself or thinking or writing in my journal or something that not ever being sexually aroused is like death. What's the point of being alive? I will never allow myself to go back. Well, guess what? I'm back. And I don't feel like it's terrible not being aroused. Mm-hmm. I feel okay with it. I mean, like, I'm living my life. I'm happy or, for you know, whatever, as much mm-hmm. as I can be. And, um, but it's, I mean, because I've tried everything. I've tried swinging. I've tried my husband's fetishism. I've tried so many things. And it's like, sometimes I feel like, I wonder, and I know you have so many women on the show and you read surveys that have very strong sex drives. And I'm kind of jealous because sometimes I say, well, because I have a lot of friends who say the same, that they don't really care so much about having sex. And for me, it's like the fun of being love addicted is what makes me want to have sex, which makes me actually physically feel aroused. The intensity of newness or, you know, whatever it is in that, in that, situation or thing that makes it intense for us and so often it's something that makes our life unmanageable that's difficult and i think kind of along the lines of that book by jack moore and the erotic mind is it's those hurdles that actually provide the turbocharging of it the unavailability or you know whatever whatever it is that for somebody to be present and willing and intimate with us uh can just be a a a buzzkill but i want to say it's been my experience that we are not stuck in that place where everything has to be difficult and complicated and secretive and whatever for us to be turned on because i have now experienced the other side where I am aroused by somebody who is present and I don't want to run and I don't find myself lost in fantasy about somebody else. And that, to me, I never thought I could become that person, but I had to process childhood trauma Mm -hmm. and all of the things that I had swept under the rug emotionally. And it was through sharing those things with the people in my support groups and giving weight to the things that were painful that had happened to me, that something left my soul, some type of poison left my soul. And I don't know if I'm done with it, but enough of it that my heart began to warm. And I know this probably sounds cheesy and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm lecturing or saying, Hey, everybody be like me. Mm -hmm. But I I just feel like it's important to share my experience that we are not necessarily doomed to have 
our arousal be linked to things that are just so unmanageable mm-hmm. logistically and emotionally in our in our lives. I Be- hope you're right. I mean, I've kind of accepted because one of the um, aftermaths of this whole situation, believe it or not, and I know people might be wondering if they have a chance to think about it, like what the hell was her husband doing all during all this? But surprisingly, the aftermath has been such an appreciation of my current husband. That's great. I it has done wonders. And how for- much does he know about? He knows. He knew that I was thinking of leaving him. Mm-hmm. He knew that I considered myself in love with this other man. And he knows that it exploded. He is hurt because he knows that the reason I didn't was because he wouldn't, meaning the other man wouldn't, mm-hmm. and that I was ready to do that, which is hurtful. But um, he knows it's over. And we, I, I appreciate him so much more because I realized that the things that attracted me to the other man, they were all surface, funny you know, makes me feel good because he's complimenting me all the time, you know. Mm. Well, but when it came down to actually, he was a fake. At least I believe he was. He was a fake. At the very least, inconsistent. At the very least. And that's being kind. Right. Exactly. And uh, and my husband's the opposite of that. He, what you see is what you get. You mm. know, he doesn't put on airs for anybody. And, you know... There's a part of me that says, you know, you can never find one person that's everything. And there are things that he doesn't have that the other man had that I wish my husband had. Mm-hmm. And but what can you do? You know, I mean, it's like nobody can be. I mean, that's mm-hmm. I know that. And why did I get so insane? Why was I willing to throw away this long term relationship with a good person, with trust and all these things, yeah. you know, for this Good time. Yeah. Because I thought it was more than a good time. Mm -hmm. I thought there was something underneath there. And the way it felt. You can't deny the way it feels. I mean, there's a reason (laughs) it's addictive. Is when you're when you're in that, logic goes out the window, that drug is coursing through your veins. Your your morals get cloudy. I was I was unrecognizable. Yeah. And and the shame of us compromising our morals to to feed our addiction. Oh, it's it's such an awful cycle because then we're sitting around filled with shame. I don't want to feel shame. Well, let me do something that that takes me into oblivion. My addiction. And then you feel the shame and that's the the cycle of shame that they talk about whether it's drugs or sex or love or shopping or whatever it's such a difficult dynamic to arrest and and change and i don't know about you but i need fucking help with that i that's not something i could manage on my own i i had to get i had to get help and and i'm glad that i got help and i know that you know everybody isn't like me just maybe some people can manage it on their own um but it is powerful you know i've had people in my support group who have kicked heroin say that that was nothing compared to kicking her wow because i've never had problems with substances like i know you've Mm -hmm. had problems with alcohol i you know and and mine are few are far between so it's odd i can go 10 years with 10 years 
without and then it you know it reared its head you know what i'm saying and yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I, thank you for all your honesty about that you know uh a lot of that i think people have trouble saying out loud or even admitting to themselves because it's so messy and it's so god is there anything worse than than looking desperate Boy, did I look desperate. Boy, did I look desperate. It's such an awful place. I pulled out every trick in the book. I took it to the hundredth, the hundredth level to get this man. He knew it and he he was loving it, I think. You know, he has his problems, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, nothing would stop me. And I'd say to him, I'd say, nothing's going to stop me. I said, I'm in love with you. You say you're in love with me. There's no reason for us not to be together. I'm not going to let you do this. Mm-hmm. I actually said that to him. I'm not going to let you not stop seeing me. And he somehow gave in every time, but maybe he just wanted sex. I don't know. I don't know what the hell yeah. the deal was. And but. I think if you had reverse genders on that, people people would, would be much more alarmed than if it were you know, a a woman and a man. Yep. And I think because he also never gave me a hard no. Yeah. He refused to do that. If he Which had is said, just catnip to the love addict. He should have, you know, if he had, if he said, look, I'm not in love with you, all right? I don't know mm-hmm. what was wrong with me when I said those things. I don't, you know, I don't, it's not that I, he would always say, I'm in love with you or I love you, but I can't do it. And, and that, that might like, have, that might have been the thing that got him high, was having you in that place where he felt in control. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, he had a problem with Coke and he had a lot of problems actually, but uh, you know, that didn't matter to me. No. no, those were, he had had, you know, terrible relationships, you know, many, many that just were a disaster, you know, but no, not with me. That's yes. not going to happen with me. Yeah. There's, there's, <laughs> there's a saying in my support group, we see red flags and we think it's a parade. <laughs> well, thank but you for, it, for, for sharing all yeah. that stuff. I think we'll we'll hold off on the the money thing for Absolutely. for another uh, episode, but uh, really important stuff, really important stuff, and I think it's so much more common than people are willing to talk about that internal life of just longing. It's great though too. <laughs> It is. It wouldn't be an addiction if it if it wasn't if it wasn't great. Yeah. yeah. Anything Thanks. you want to share before uh, before we go? No, I'm I'm out of breath from telling yeah. that whole story. Yeah. As, so, but thank you. I really appreciate yeah. you having me on. My pleasure. All right. Many many thanks to uh, to Hannah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available. On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Let's dive into some uh, some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Heather. And she deals with anxiety and she writes, I'm currently going through a breakup but still live with the person. We're thinking about giving it another shot, but I'm constantly having anxiety attacks about what his decision will be and if he will decide to sleep around with other girls before making a full decision. I cannot be home alone. Otherwise, all I feel is anxiety. I pace around the house. I feel my heart in my throat and shake until he finally gets back home. I wanted to read that one. Because, um, well, I had a couple of thoughts, and the first one is, you know, your fear of him sleeping around, uh, that would be something that I think would be really important to bring up with him. And if you don't trust him, I think that's a really important piece of information about whether or not you should get back together uh, with him. And if you don't trust him, but you still decide that you want to get back together with him, uh, then you should set a hard boundary that you both get uh, tested for STDs before you have sex again. So just wanted to share my two cents on that. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Meep Morp. He's in his 20s. And uh, share a moment in your life where you wish you could go back in time. And he writes, I would go back in time to when I was in kindergarten and tell myself that I shouldn't be ashamed of all the things I was being made fun of, like the scar on my arm and the color of my skin. I would also like to take the time to tell my parents my skin condition isn't something to make a big deal out of, that I'm already getting made fun of for all the other things at school. I don't need their shit. Take anything you want from nature and decide who you want to give it to. He writes, I would take a bright red rose and give it to myself. Why did you choose this? And this is a gift. The color and the smell of a rose makes me feel good, even if just for a second. Pick a positive moment in your day. Use all your senses. What did you see, feel, smell, and think? A positive moment would be when my now ex-fiance gave me a promise ring and I thought he was going to propose. I could hear the water hit the shore and feel the cold Boston winter air bite at my hand when I took off the glove to put the ring on. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and what would you do with it? My superpower would be like poison ivy's power to control or grow plants. I would make my own little forest wherever I pleased. Oh, I like that one. There's just something about, it's hard to be pissed off when you're, actually it's not hard to be pissed off. If you're camping and uh, shit's not working out, it's actually really easy to get pissed off. But um, I think the most beautiful nature that I've ever been in uh, was in Washington State. I, I don't know, it was probably 20 years ago. I took a glacier climbing class. And um, we summited Mount Baker, which I think is like 10,000 feet. Um, as far as the mountains go, it's not considered that that big, but uh, kind of dangerous because you're climbing across glaciers and 
you know, there are crevasses and stuff like that. But it was not only the hike up there through the lushest forest that I'd ever seen, but when we got above the tree line and there is no wildlife and it's just glacier, when there's no wind, if nobody's talking, it it's a perfect silence. And I felt my body change in that in that moment. I'd never experienced pure silence like that. Because you can be in a room and there's no sign, but the room itself has a tone to it. And you you hear it in your ears. That's a lot of why a lot of I don't know why I'm sharing this information. But a lot of times uh, when they're recording stuff for television or movies, it, they get what's called a room tone so that uh, when you jump from one person to the next, you don't hear the tone of the room change. I p- could not have explained that worse. I really, truly am lightheaded, and this is going downhill very quickly. This is a happy moment uh, filled out by Mary Lynn, and she writes, I'm a housekeeper in a hospital. I had my cart parked in a way that made it look like I was in a room with a closed door, but I was actually just around the corner. The nurses coming out of the operating room further down Uh, And I hear the following, did you call housekeeping? Oh, never mind, she's here already. Yeah, it's Mary Lynn. Oh, I like her. Yeah, she's great. Can I just say that as the unseen, forgotten night shift worker, this Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day. I love it. I love it. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by uh, Roe, who is uh, 18 and identifies as gender fluid. And Roe writes, did I say the Back in Time Survey or Shame and Secret Survey? This is from the Back in Time Survey. I think I think I need some electrolytes. <laughs> uh. Roe writes, I would go back in time to my younger self between ages 8 and 12 when I would stand in the shower bleeding from inside, hugging my own body, rocking back and forth, singing to myself to soothe my system, and telling myself beautiful imaginary stories. I would love to step in and just hug her. There is nothing I would be able to say. It would be too painful to even get words out. I would just want to hug her and make her feel safe for a second. I want her to feel like in that moment she doesn't have to survive, that she can just let go for a minute and be a child, that there is an adult that will protect her in the future, that this will end, that she will be safe, and she will be held with love by herself when she gets older. Wow. Take anything you want from nature and decide who you want to give it to. I would want everyone to have a little spot in nature, completely to themselves, where they can feel safe, free, and at peace. And I would drown the person who abused me in lava. But at the same time, I could never! Exclamation point. How do you drown somebody in lava? Because you got to get close to the lava. Suppose you got to put on your lava drowning boots. And what do you just get a big fork? Just push the person into the lava? 
That would be, that would be so horrifying watching somebody get eaten by lava. I imagine they would make a little bit of noise. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself K. He identifies his straight. He's in his 40s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Drugs, motorcycle gangs, prostitution, Southern racism, and Lutheran school. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. The longer I listen to your show, the more I realize how many inappropriate situations I endured as a child. Molested by a foster brother as a toddler, used for stimulation by a drunk older sister on a couple of occasions, initiated into sword fighting by another foster brother, molested by a kid my age, constantly in inappropriate situations with my mother, exposed to prostitution, dot, dot, dot. He's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, I was physically abused by my father and am emotionally abused by my mother. His reactions were very much of his generation and amplified by his circumstance. He was never that person outside of their relationship. She was a dirt poor Catholic who was willing to cut anyone's throat to be middle class. Her father was a grifter and her mother an alcoholic. She never learned to not brag about it any positive experiences with them. I was adopted and from a different ethnic background, so the whole, quote, better life thing looms overhead. While our fathers, quote, didn't beat us half as bad as they used to get it, unquote, I wish there had been a different way. I emotionally divorced my mother when I was nine. After staying in the room of a hotel which she was managing while she worked the night shift to keep an eye on my heroin-using-slash-dealing stepdad number one, and then fuck him in the adjoining living room. She taunted her sleepy son in the car early the next morning with a mostly deflated balloon in the face. Aw, oh, does my titty baby need a titty? I've been pretty good since then. Holy shit. Darkest thoughts. I just want to hop a train and ride to anywhere else. Darkest secrets. I was once shipped across state lines to my dad because my mom got busted for being a pimp. And I used to peep on one of my sisters. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being in a wonderfully balanced, monogamous relationship where we can both express ourselves openly and with abandon. You are a monster. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I am still holding grudges like shields, but they only weigh me down. What, if anything, do you wish for? More time to do the things that feed the positive side of me to find a similar soul and love each other from where we are. You sound like such a, a, a really good dude, a really sensitive old soul. Thank you for that survey. I appreciate it. And I'm sorry you had to go through all that shit, man. That was, that was a cornucopia of bullfuck that you had to live through. And then finally, this is uh, from the racism survey filled out by a woman in her 20s who uh, calls herself open to change. 
And she writes a little bit of backstory. I am a mixed black woman that grew up in the DMV area. Uh, DMV is uh, kind of slang for um, uh, District of Columbia, Maryland, uh, Virginia. Other people would just say the D.C. area. Um, and moved to Ohio for college. My second year of living here, Trump was elected president, and I found myself in the heart of MAGA country, terrified of my neighbors, co-workers, and clients. I'm an independent contractor in an industry comprised mostly of both affluent-slash-rich and country folk. I was desperate to move away to somewhere more diverse or back to the DMV for the first five years living there, looking for any opportunity for an out even if it meant putting me in a worse-off financial place. Over the past few years, I've changed my views a lot and chosen to see the good parts in people I would have been afraid of or presumed to have a distaste for me, a prejudice on my part as a black woman towards white people of a certain character. Since doing so, I've had so many wonderful experiences and interactions with people that I would have missed out on if I'd had those protective walls up that I had when I was younger. And I love Ohio now. I never thought I'd say it, but the state is beautiful nature-wise and plentiful farm-wise. I want a homestead, and the people are generally nice and generous. That is not to say that it's not necessary for me to be aware of my surroundings and avoid situations that look to be unsafe, but I had created this prejudice myself that was limiting me from coexisting with those that may not have the same views as me. An experience I had hiking in the Ohio Appalachia this week made me really reflect on the growth I've had and how my perception of the world around me has truly transformed my experience. I was hiking with two friends, uh, male 29 and female 23 in white, in southern Ohio this past Sunday. Lovely hike. We get back to the car and decide to pick up trash and put it in the trunk to dispose of when we get back into town. Absent-minded, my friend leaves the keys in the trunk and I close it, locking us out. Okay, stay calm. I know how to wedge a car door to get into it. Let's look for resources. That's when litter comes in handy. Can only find a wire and try to break in. I become nervous as hikers passing by or watching three young people break into the into a car in the parking lot. I recently shaved my head, have big stretched ears, piercings, and I am aware what it could look like. I keep trying, but no luck. We have no service as we are in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. We have no choice but to hitchhike into town. A woman comes up to us with her seven-year-old son and offers us a ride into town so that we can get service and call AAA to come get our car. We are so thankful and have a lovely chat with her and her son as we cram into her truck and she takes us the 20 minutes into town to a coffee shop. She then finds a police officer while waiting in line for coffee, dealing with a cop is another situation where I would have been nervous in the past, and he offers to come break into the car for us. The lady and her son and this is in caps, drive us all the way back to our car following the officer, exclamation point. Then the officer helps us into our car, all smiles and notices that we have climbing gear in the back. He then proceeds to pull out his park map and point out where all the good spots are at this time of year. Three years ago, 
I may have even fucked up that experience. Would it have presented itself to me due to my wariness and presumptiveness of country white folk? In the past years that I have changed, in the past years that I have changed the way I choose to perceive others and give people the benefit of the doubt when possible in terms of PC language, etc., I have had an overwhelming amount of positive experiences and have been and have been relate more intimately, I think there's a typo there, uh, with those whom at one time I would have thought to be my enemy. It was a wonderful experience. I'm so glad I locked those fucking keys in the car. Thank you for that. That is what a big heart you have. What a big heart. You know, it, it, my favorite people in the world are seekers. And my least favorite people in the world are cynical people. Being cynical is the easiest fucking thing in the world. You risk nothing. And you live a small, miserable life without ever getting to truly experience the freedom of letting go and tapping into that, that as corny as it sounds, that, that power in the universe Wherever it is that love comes from, you know, I lived 40 years without ever really being truly vulnerable, and it was a miserable way to live. It was really miserable, and I had to be on the brink of dying from drugs and alcohol to learn how to be vulnerable, and it's amazing how things that on the surface seem like such a shitty deal can wind up being so, so amazing. Anyway, enough of my yakking. I'm glad you guys uh, made it through my lightheadedness. And, uh, whew, I need to go lay down. Gracie, where are you? I might, I might need you to admini- administer first aid to me. <laughs> Maybe I'm just hungry. Anyway, let's wrap this fucking thing up, huh? Enough of my yakking. Never forget, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.